Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today, I am so looking forward to talking with Steve Magnus, and he has uh, recently released this brand new book called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Now, if you've been listening to the Learner's Corner for a while, you have heard this uh, many times, but if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know a couple of things. One, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because we want to be the place to where if you want to learn about something, then you can come here because we are having that conversation. The second thing is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with someone 100%, that we can disagree with them about one thing and learn from them in another in another thing. And sometimes that learning is learning from their example of what they got well or what they did well. And other times it's learning from their failure of what they got wrong and maybe what they wish they would have done differently. And the last thing is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that is, because everything has something to teach us. We can learn something from everything. And today we are learning from Steve Magnus around this idea of toughness. What is toughness? What isn't toughness? What is real toughness? And that's really what got me interested in this. I always love learning from people who have these ideas or come across this research or do this research that goes against what is the commonly held belief. And that's what Steve does a lot in this book. Uh, he has, he uh, kind of contradicts this, this common knowledge that we hold about what toughness is. And he examines it. He turns down inside and he goes, is this really what toughness looks like? And does this actually work? Does this produce toughness does this produce the toughness may not even be the right word but is the is our methods of producing toughness actually healthy for us is what we've been told about how to become tough is that actually healthy is that good for us in the long term and spoiler it's not we're going to get into that a little bit later in our conversation now you may have something that you would love us uh, to talk about on the podcast or something that you would love to learn from or someone that you would love to learn from as well. And the best way to reach out to me is learners corner podcast at gmail.com would love to hear from you on any recommendations that you may have. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Steve and then we're going to jump into this conversation. So Steve Magnus is a re world-renowned expert on performance, co-author of Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. He is the author of, and also the author of The Science of Running. His writing has appeared in Runner's World and Sports Illustrated. He has been featured in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, as well as many other publications as well. As a performance coach, Steve works with executives, entrepreneurs, and athletes, and he is the co-founder of Growth equation as well and he has most recently authored this book called do hard things so without any further wait here is our conversation
Well, Steve, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, you've recently released this brand new book called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong in the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And anytime that I talk with someone who is, you know, created a work of art, um, in this case, you know, for you, it's it's writing this book. I love hearing the story or the the event or the series of events that led someone uh, to become interested in the idea that they write about. And so I would just love to hear that for me of what got you interested in this. Oh man, that's, uh, it goes back away. I think I've always to a degree been interested in this topic because when I was younger in high school and college, I was a, a track and field athlete and ran. And a lot of running is, well, figuring out how to, how to do difficult things and, and navigate it and, and not listen to that voice in your head that's telling you like, slow down, quit, all that stuff. Um, but, but what really got me interested in this actually is I just, I had faced some challenges in my life, uh, most particularly in my first job that I ever did. I was put in this situation where I essentially, I had to blow the whistle on, uh, on some things that I saw that weren't right. Um, in this case, it was in the sporting world. I was a coach. I saw some rule violations and <laughs> I reported them and that led to literally nine years of going through, you know, lawyers and meetings and, you know, essentially kind of arbitration cases. And it was really, really difficult. And, you know, my instinct during that time initially, again, this lasted a long time, but initially was just like the old athletic instinct of like, oh, I'm just going to put my head down and grind through it and just like compartmentalize my life and forget everything else and just get this done. And that just failed miserably. <laughs> it made me miserable. Uh, it made my, my friends and family members around me miserable because like, I just wasn't handling it well. So it really forced me to kind of step back and think like, okay, is there a better way to <laughs> handle adversity or things that are really challenging in our life. And that that's kind of what got me started down, down this path. So I guess the, the short answer is we always write the books we need, and this is the book that I needed. Uh, yeah, just as you were talking about uh, some of those uh, beliefs that you had of like, hey, I, I just got to push through for it. One of mine that I thought of that, and it sometimes can be, the case, but I think I've gotten better is like, I tell myself, like, I can't feel that right now. Like, I don't have time to deal with that, with just that emotion. It's like, I need to hit pause on that. And uh, I've learned through many things that that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> exactly. That's it. That's a great point. And that's, that's like, that was my instinct too, is like, I just can't feel this, like, just ignore it, push it away. And what what always happens, as you know, is like when we push those things away or we try and put them in these boxes, they often come back like tenfold. Oh, yeah. And, and and that's like, that's the problem. So again, it's like, and but that's also what I'd learned to do growing up, probably similar to you is like, oh, this is how we handle this. Put this emotion in a box, put it over away. Can't feel this right now. 
So I just, you know, I went on this exploration to understand things like that of, well, what did we get wrong and what's the better way to do it? Yeah. And speaking of that, I would just love to hear um, maybe just initially, like some of the ideas that it's like, okay, this is our idea of what toughness can look like. And, you know, I would just love to hear what you learned, what, what isn't true about some of our ideas that are commonly held or commonly held assumptions out there. It's like, okay, that may, that may be commonly believed, but that is not what the research shows, or that's not what our experience shows. Yeah. So I'll start with the one you just mentioned is that common belief is, especially in sport, it's like, don't feel your feelings. Don't listen to them, push them away. But that goes for all, all of life almost like, don't, don't feel it. No, the old adage, like no crying in baseball. (laughs) Right. Um, But the reality is that that runs counter to what the research shows. The research shows like we almost need to kind of make friends with our feelings and emotions so that we can understand them. It doesn't mean we have to listen to every single one of them. Some might be inaccurate, but we have to like not fear them and not shun them so that we can deal with them. Another common mistake that we make often is we think toughness is about like having this almost unimpeachable confidence where it's like, oh, I just, I can handle anything, like throw it all at me. I got it. Again, that backfires research and practice of the best performers all show us that a little bit of doubt is normal and it can actually be beneficial. Um, As one military uh, operator told me, he said, doubt keeps me focused. If I didn't have the doubt, I would be in a bad place because I wouldn't be aware of things that I need to be aware of. Mm. So there's a lot of different things like that, that really, again, misconceptions. Another one that I think is really at the heart of this book is that we often think of toughness as, well, how do we develop, create, and instill it? It's like, well, if we're incredibly demanding and we're like really tough on our kids as parents or coaches, or if we're the boss of a company and we lead with the authoritarian fist and that will create this like tough, resilient teams or kids or organizations or whatever have you, that backfires hundred <laughs> percent because what happens there is people stop leading you or listening because they believe you. They stop following because they buy into your ideas, your goals, your motivation. They only follow when you're there out of a place of fear. And what we know is when we're performing or living out of a place of fear, that fear might help us like momentarily, but over the long term, it leads to all sorts of negative outcomes and also like puts us in a place where we, where we don't you know, persist or handle challenging times because fear just kind of beats us down. Mm -hmm. What you got me thinking about is, and this is along similar veins of it, is are there common like phrases or things that you hear? Like I'm thinking of like people who are in like leadership roles and, you know, you want to get the best out of your team and you know that you're going to be facing like a very challenging situation. You know, it could be sports, could be, you know, any workplace, whatever situation. Um, Are there any like common phrases or stuff that maybe you've noticed and been like, okay, we, we catch ourselves saying that because, yep, this, this is a good idea, but uh, you're like, okay, it, it might not be the best thing to say, you know, X thing. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I love these. 
Uh, a couple that come to mind in sport, you used to hear this all the time, is things like suck it up, you know, or man up. And often we think like, oh, that's like inspiring. Like I'm telling just come on, get it together. <laughs> but again, research practice, all that tells us is like that often backfires because what message is that person getting or that brain is getting as like, oh, crap. Like, I'm not doing well. My coach is, is angry. Like, I've got to just force my way through things. And what we know is just about any time we force through things, we tense up and we don't perform well. The same, you know, similar things in the, in the well, another one that occurs both in sport and in the work, actually, that <laughs> is quite similar is we'll go up to someone who looks really nervous or anxious and we'll tell them, just relax, relax. And again, that often backfires. Why? Because if you come up to me before, let's say a big presentation in the office and you're my boss and you're saying, just relax. Well, my brain interprets that as, oh crap, I must look extra nervous because why else would he tell me to relax? So it's almost amplifies the anxiety instead of turns it down. So there... <laughs> There's a, a lot, uh, you know, I'm sure we could go days on this, but those are a couple that just pop into my head where it's like, they're almost stuck around because we've heard them so much that we don't take time to step back and be like, hey, is this really the right thing we should be saying in this moment? Does it really send the right message or does it just send us in a bad direction? Yeah. Something that got me thinking while you were saying that is whenever, whenever you have those, like specifically, you know, the suck it up and made me think of, um, you know, you, you hit your limits and it's like, okay, I, I literally can't go anymore. And sometimes there's the tendency of like the leader, whoever it is just goes, I mean, they may not say this exactly, but it's like, I don't believe you. Like you can give more in the situation. And I'm just thinking about like the harmful effect that like literally that that can just create. And I would love for you just to talk about um, like maybe just the harm that these ideas of toughness can create. Um, not only in ourselves, but in, in the people that we're responsible for also. Or yeah, responsible yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's spot on because what it does is any of those responses, especially when it comes from people, let's say in power and control, that could be a parent, it could be a boss, it could be a coach, just where those power dynamics are shifted. What happens is we're in internalizing all of that. So if we have this model, let's take the example you used there. If we have this model where someone says, I don't believe you, you can give more. Well, that's not sending a, a message of trust. It's not sending a message of like, oh, you're giving everything you've got. You're putting in the effort. I respect that. I thank you for doing that for our company or organization or team. It's sending the message that I don't believe you. And what that does it is it creates almost this like psychological memory in your head where it's like, oh, like people don't think that I'm good enough. People don't think I can give the effort needed. Oh, <laughs> you know, my boss doesn't respect me, what have you. And over time, these things accumulate and put us in these negative uh, head spaces where we often have, again, these insecurities and doubts. And what happens is 
those things become the items that we react to. So in the future, when we're put in, let's say a similar situation, maybe with not out that boss, even there, it's almost like our brain's been trained to say like, Oh, I'm going to react negatively here and have like a stress response because Remember when our boss told us that like we weren't good enough, that we weren't trying hard enough, even though like you were exhausted and you worked all these hours on this presentation. So it just creates these, again, almost like this psychological damage where it's like these trigger points over time that just eat away at us. And I, I guess one example I'll give this that might resonate with the listeners is you see this a lot in relationships, right? Mm -hmm. You often argue over these like small things in relationships, which, you know, you step back and you're like, why are we arguing over like who left the, the, you know, the chips out or something like that. Right. But you're doing that probably because, you know, someone got scolded at some point for doing that. So it's like this little trigger in there where it's like, oh, I'm going to go defensive and threat now because it's ingrained in my head. Mm. Yeah, that even makes me think of, and it, and it may be triggered by something that didn't even happen in that relationship too. It could have happened, you know, seven years ago. It, exactly. And that's the case. And that's so often it is, is it's, it doesn't have to even be with that person in that moment. It can be just that lingering effect of, where literally your, I don't know, your, your high school crush did that, or your middle school coach and football practice told you, you know, to suck it up and you weren't good enough and you were never going to make it. And that created this, this lingering trigger where now, you know, you react in that, that negative way. Yeah. I want to read uh, the, the definition that you have in the book for real toughness, and then talk a little bit about that. You say that real toughness is experiencing discomfort or distress, leaning in, paying attention and creating space to take thoughtful action. It's navigating discomfort to make the best decision you can. And we've talked about that a little bit of just creating that space and relaxing. What I would love to just talk a little bit more of what have you learned about what helps you create that space? Or what have you learned through research that helps you like relax or take the pressure off or create that, that moment in order to respond, not in an anxious way, but, a, but in a helpful one. Yeah, definitely. So I think what I look at it is, I almost look at it is how do we create that space? Well, pressure, stress, anxiety, all of those things tend to cause us to narrow where it seems like the world is ending. It seems like the anxiety we're feeling is like overwhelming and never going to end. And what we have to do is create that space by zooming out and creating distance or perspective. And there's a number of research backed ways that you can do this. You can do this, you know, by a, the people you surround yourself with. Do you have friends who can create that perspective in those moments to be like, Hey, it's not the end of the world. You know, look at the big picture in those moments without friends. You can do things like how you talk to yourself, your inner voice. So if you talk to yourself, your self-talk is actually in second or third person versus first person. Lots of good research that shows it's almost like the brain goes, oh, okay, we don't have to get trapped in this negative rumination cycle. Like we're okay. So again, changing your inner voice. Another thing that works well as well is what you pay attention to. When we're pressured, stressed, anxious, we tend to narrow in on whatever the threat is. 
So our eyes, our vision, our attention gets locked in on the threat. I mean, it's an ancient survival mechanism. Well, how do we get ourselves out of that? We zoom out. If you broaden your attention, you look into the periphery, you soften your gaze, that all helps create that space. Another thing that, that really works well too is, again, thinking on different time horizons. Instead of right here, here and now, how do I survive this moment? Zoom out. How would I think, how am I going to look it back on this in a month, in a year, in five years? Will this be as big of a deal? Maybe, maybe not, but like anything that creates that perspective. One of my favorite stories um, <laughs> that I didn't put in the book, but that really resonates is I was talking to a good friend who was at the, the track and field Olympic trials. And it's super pressure feel filled. You're trying to make the Olympic team, all that stuff. And I'm like, how in the world did you deal with that? And she says, I stood on the starting line and I looked around the stadium and I reminded myself, well, this might seem like the biggest moment of your life. It's running around in circles. It's track and field. No one cares. And the people who do care are your like your family, your good friends, and they won't care if you win, lose, or get last. So it's all okay. Man, that's so good. Is there anything, uh, anything else just that maybe surprised you in learning that takes the pressure off? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think uh, one of the things that really surprised me actually is in the work around our, our sense of control. Mm. So we're often told to control the controllables, which is good advice. But what the, what the research and the practice says is that even small bits of control during difficult things can help a lot. And what I mean by that is if you've ever watched, I don't know, a performer, let's say a musician who goes out on stage, is they often have some sort of routine that's just ingrained and sometimes superstitious before they go out on stage. Well, the reason that, that they have that and the reason that the science set shows that it, it works to a degree is because it gives you just a little bit of a sense of control because you're going through your normal routine and you're doing something that like you have control over. And that almost like opens your brain up and says, okay, this isn't totally out of our hands. We still have some influence in this. And one of, one of the most fascinating examples of this that I talked about in the book is actually an athlete I worked with who, this is going to sound like a strange story, but I promise it's science-backed and it makes sense, is before every race, she got so anxious that she would throw up from the nerves. And she worked with a sports psychologist for years. We tried everything. We tried all sorts of everything. And then I talked to a really uh, good and intrepid uh, social worker who also worked with athletes. And he said, you know, Steve, the problem isn't the anxiety. You fix that. But the problem is she's like linked the environment with the reaction. Mm. So she shows up for a race and then the anxiety is kind of occurring because it's like normal. That's routine. So what you have to do is you have to convince her brain that, hey, it's okay, you're secure and you're in control. So the way we did that is we kind of flipped the script is before the race, I said, you know what? We're not gonna try to stop your throwing up like we always do. We're just gonna schedule it. 
And we're going to say at this time, you know, before the race, we're going to find the trash can and you're going to throw up. And she, she was like, okay, this is weird. So I like set alarms on her phones and said, when it goes up, it's throw up time, like get it done. Well, what happens? She doesn't need to throw up because it like flipped the script of like, I'm taking control of this thing. It's now I'm saying when it occurs, it's not occurring to me, I'm in charge. And that simple flip of the script allowed her to like realize in her brain to be like, oh yeah, we're in charge. We don't have to go through this. We're okay. We don't need to puke. And that's such a interesting idea of like unlinking the reaction to the environment, because I think um, there's probably so, I mean, maybe not running and throwing up, probably not everybody has that specific situation, but we've all had some type of, uh, you know, trauma or, or some type of experience. And it, even part of it could be like re- just receiving really harsh feedback. Like that's a, a common example that I think of. Um, I would just love your thoughts on like maybe s- some more handles around how can you go about unlinking your reaction from the environment and taking back some more of that control? Yeah. So that's a good question. And I think there I'd go to one of the standards that you see in in therapy, which is essentially exposure response therapy. So put yourself in those environments and then like sit with that discomfort, but then also create outlets around that or boundaries or barriers that allow you to feel secure. So one of the best ways you can do this essentially is let's say, you know, you go to work and you got criticized really badly. So you have this like trauma almost around that. Well, what do you do? You go in (laughs) into that environment. Maybe you have that like instant feeling of like, oh no, like you bring a friend with you to maybe go just have a chat with the boss who caused it or the person who criticized it. And that friend offers that support where it like brings that level down and you feel almost like, okay, even if I'm not totally in control, I have my support system here. So I don't need to sound the alarm. And you can kind of dislodge that, that environment from that response. The best thing you can do again is like, how do you learn to sit with it? And the best way is very small doses with the support around you that allows you to, again, not go from zero to hundred in terms of feeling that threat. Yeah. One of the things I would uh, love to hear your thoughts on is um, some of these like more harmful or just ideas that just don't work in terms of persevering and working through any thoughts on like where those things come from. Yeah. So I think they're kind of deeply ingrained in our culture, especially in the U S and I think, you know, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but in the U S we've always had this kind of, you know, individualistic hard work which in some ways can be great, Mm -hmm. but it's like anything too much of that idea can often backfire. And actually there was this fascinating research that looked at um, way back in the like 1700s, 1800s, if you failed at your job or your pursuit, it was seen as if like, oh, you know, you're not a failure. You just failed at this thing. And then in the mid to late 1800s, it's fascinating because of bank credit ratings, the verbiage switched from you failed at, you know, growing crops or as a teacher or as a banker or whatever, 
it switched to you are a failure. And they think it switched because all of a sudden to get credit, to get a loan, et cetera, they were judging you and labeling you in this area in the banks. And that took hold and almost switched us in society to see these things. And I think that's fascinating and maybe not the beginning of this toughness idea, but it gets at this idea where we start almost internalizing our external pursuits. And when we do that, some of these ideas on like, oh, well, hard work defines who I am. Oh, being tough defines who I am. It's not just I'm tough at, you know, playing this sport or getting through this performance or writing a book and persisting. It's that that is an individual characteristic and I think that's that that stage and then the, on, on toughness itself, it's kind of fascinating is it was a mix kind of between old school military and then that old school military approach translating into sport, because what happened is we use sport as kind of the 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 segue almost. And you had all these, especially after World War Two, all these people who got drafted into the military then become like coaches and athletes and all this stuff. And it almost became this intertwined of like, oh, how do we create toughness in these environments? We just treat treat them like we were treated at boot camp and just like survive everything. Not recognizing that, especially during World War II, that boot camp was a very small and temporary piece of like, oh crap, we have a world war and we have to get these people who were civilians and get them ready in like a week to go into the battlefront. So forget everything. Like we just have to get you ready. Like that's not reality for most of us. That That's not how it works in the real life. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to something that you, you touched on a little bit and you, and you talk about it so much in the book because you talk about our inner drive as well of finding that internal thing that drives us to do it. And, you know, you're talking about all these external, you know, measures that we use uh, to do that. I would just love some of your, your thoughts and some of what you've learned around uh, the internal drive and how that affects our ability to persevere. Yeah. So the way I like to put it is that the external drives are, are very short term. They're like lighter fluid, right? It looks great. You think it's a big boost, but it, it quickly burns out. Internal drive is more like, you know, grilling with coals. They don't look that great, but they're going to burn for a really long time. And that is what we need to go after because it's the sustainable part. So the more internal drive you have, the better you're able to persist, the more likely you're going to go through adversity and come out on the other side okay, um, the more you're going to be able to create perspective when you know, you're going through difficult times. So how do we create that internal drive? Well, it's all about making sure you're doing the thing because it's something that you enjoy, that it's something that gives you meaning, that it's something that fulfills some of your basic psychological needs. There's all sorts of research that shows you know, one the best kind of ways to boost that internal drive is have environments that give you autonomy, which is like, you know, a voice and a choice mm -hmm. um, that gives you competency, which is I can make progress in this area. I can grow in whatever I'm doing. And then the third one, which is belonging, which is, do I feel like 
you know, a greater part of the community that I'm trying to persist in this pursuit? Like, does this make me feel more than just like I'm helping myself, but I'm helping others? So if you can kind of cultivate those three things, your internal drive generally will increase a lot. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the situation that I'm, I'm currently working through is I'm, you know, in, in my role, you know, I'm, I have people who I'm responsible for and even just in life, I have people that. And so one of the things I've been trying to do is like help people kind of figure out like just out of college, like, Hey, what is, what's my path? And trying to figure out how do you tap into someone's internal drive? And like, how do you lead them through? Yeah. Just tapping into their internal drive. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, is learning how to uh, listen to your body and understand things. So that internal drive, again, those three things are really important. Um, but I would also say is in that situation, what you're trying to do is essentially dabble mm -hmm. and explore enough to where you see, hey, does this spark of interest turn into something that like, hey, I'm motivated to do? So the way I look at it is, especially early on for people in college or out of high school or out of college, like give yourself enough room to try different things, to dabble and explore and go just deep enough to where you see if, is this a fleeting interest or is this something that really kind of lights that inner fire where it's like, yeah, I, I enjoy doing this or I enjoy wrestling with the challenge. And there's one caveat on this is often we think of like internal drive is like, oh, I need to enjoy it. That doesn't mean every second of the day you enjoy it, right? It just means yeah. as, a, as a whole, like it brings some joy and you're like drawn to that. I can assure you, I love writing, but there are moments when I'm writing where I'm just like, oh my gosh, I wish this was done. Like, why am I struggling with this chapter? Someone else finish it. So that's normal. Mm. One of the things as you were talking about earlier that came to mind, which I don't think is a, it's too typical, too typical of a thing when thinking about this is that uh, sometimes the hard thing can be choosing to stop like doing something. And often it's more like, well, you know, try harder, do more all of that. Um, I would just love your thoughts around just sometimes that stopping. Sometimes stopping is the hardest thing to do. It, it, it absolutely is. And the example I love on this, and I use this in the book, but I think it was, it, it's like, it was the moment it clicked for me as I was talking to, you know, these, these world-class climbers who climb like peaks, like Mount Everest and what have you. And they spend months and months and years to get ready for this harrowing adventure. And then they said to me, you know, Steve, the hardest thing to do is you get, you're nearing the summit. You can kind of see it. You know that it's getting close, but you have to sit there and say, hey, do I have the energy not only to make it all the way up to the summit, but do I have the energy to make it to the summit and all the way back down alive? And often the answer is, no, I don't, because you're exhausted and you have to quit and turn around. And they said, that is the tough decision to do because most of the accidents and climbing on those major mountains occur in that danger zone where you're, you're so tempted because you just want to reach that summit more than anything. 
but you're not aware where it's like, no, this is the bad decision because I'm not going to get back to see my family, my friends, my loved ones and do the things that I want to do. So I think (laughs) that example illustrates it perfect where the tough decision is to stop. And I think so often in life, we're, we're set with these societal, like, you know, things of, you know, keep pushing, never give up, never surrender. If you quit, you're weak or you're loser, what have you. And it just does damage because what it does is it causes us to persist in things we probably should have quit. And you see this in the workplace all the time where people persist in an environment where they're not very happy and not fulfilled. And maybe they'd enjoyed this other thing over here, but they're like, you know, beating their head against the wall and trying to do the tough thing when, when the tough thing is walking away, it's like, don't be, you know, that in the Bible, I think it was Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, you know, (laughs) like, it's like, at some point you need to be like, you know, forget the boulder. I'm going to go find another hill that doesn't have a boulder on that I can climb and I'm going to be okay. Uh, um, I want to go back to, and you, you've mentioned it a couple of, of times is you've talked about just the importance of listening to your body and it is well, which, uh, which may not be super familiar, uh, for, for some people listening, I would just love for you to just kind of unpack that. Hey, what does that look like? How can you do that? Yeah, sure. So listening to your body is, is all your feelings and your emotions and all that. That's essentially your body's communication system saying, hey, something is a little bit different. Sometimes that difference is good. Sometimes we'll call it negative or bad. Um, Sometimes it's correct and it's warning. Sometimes it's a false alarm. But the only way we can kind of figure out how to, you know, what is correct and what we should listen to is not by ignoring our feelings and emotions, but training to understand them. I like to think of it as like our body's communication system, those feelings, emotions, all those things. They're like a language that we don't understand when we're born, but over time we can, if we, again, embrace and learn to sit with and and understand the nuance. The the example I like to give here is (laughs) um, my wife is an elementary school teacher and works with, you know, kindergarten, first grade, young kids. And she tells me that like, you know, early on these kids, if they throw a tantrum or they're upset, you ask them what's wrong. And they inevitably say the same thing, which is like, I'm sad. Well, to them, like they don't understand the complexity behind the feelings and emotions they're experiencing. So everything is sad. Well, hopefully as adults for us, that sadness could be, could be loneliness, right? It could be frustration. It could be mixed with a little bit of anger or loss or what have you. But each delineation requires a different solution. If I'm feeling lonely, well, what does that mean? I need to go, you know, spend some time with family and loved ones. If I'm feeling frustrated, maybe spending time with family and loved ones isn't the thing. And maybe just kind of, oh, I'm going to feel this and get through this. So (laughs) what we need to learn how to do is delineate the nuance between our internal experiences so that when we can then find the right solution um, and, and understand what we're trying to do. Yeah. It even makes me think about, and you, you touched on a little bit earlier and even just now of sometimes we don't have the toolkit to handle the situation that we're in. And I would just love your thoughts on maybe some, 
because that's not, it's not always easy to discern like, okay, I do not have the necessary tool to use right now. And so I would just love your thoughts on how can we almost like self-diagnose and go, okay, I need to do some learning. I need to do some reading. I need to, you know, like do some YouTube, YouTube things like that and go, okay, I do not know how to handle this situation. What helps you figure out that you don't know what to do? Yeah. So there's two things is where are the pain points? Meaning where are the things that routinely cause you this like frustration or push you over the edge into this like freak out mode or this spiraling where you don't feel like yourself? Those are the things you don't have the toolkits for, right? That could be, you know, it could be, I don't know, arguing with your spouse can do that. It could be, you know, talking with your boss and getting criticized by others. It could be any number of things, but anything that pushes you to that place where it's like, you feel that freak out, that anxiety, that loss of what to do, that is an indicator. You do not have the necessary tools to be able to handle that moment. The other thing that works really well is your friends and family often know better than, than you do. So if you can ask your friends and family, I'm like, Hey, like, what are the things that I don't handle? Well, what are the situations that cause me to, you know, go a little bit crazy or nuts or whatever you want to call it. And they'll be able to tell you. And again, all that tells you is it's not that, Hey, you have this lifelong problem and you're never going to be able to solve it. All it means is, you know, you don't have the, 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 the right screwdriver for the, the screw head. Like you've got to figure out how do I develop this um, so that I have the right toolkit to match the, the thing that I'm facing. What are some of those areas that you just tend to see just generally of like, yep, these are some areas to where people tend to need um, more tools or they need to develop better tools. <laughs> Yeah. So I think a lot of it is around actually like psychological discomfort. So for whatever reason, I think we're in a place where maybe our egos or because we have social media now and we're expected to live this kind of like perfect life that I think often that creates this unrealistic expectation. So our, our tools or our weak points where we don't have that developed are around what I'd call like psychological challenges, like places where we might be seen as, you know, quote unquote failing mm. or things that might expose our ego or our sense of self or our competency and something publicly. Like those are often the places where, you know, we don't have the tools to kind of navigate um, how to handle that challenge. So if I'm hearing you right, it's almost like, we, we almost avoid like places to where it's like, okay, this is, this is information that I don't know, or it's information that it's new to me. And so I see it and I almost maybe get scared. I don't know if that would be the right thing. Cause I don't think anyone would admit that. I don't think I, I would not admit that. Um, but then we go, okay. So the, then we just run away. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. What, what tends to happen is we do, we, we, you know, it's the most ancient, it's one of the most ancient systems in our brain, which is you experience a threat and you either approach it or you avoid it. 
because it's like I approach it to see if I can like understand it or maybe again ancient on the savannah maybe I have to take it on whatever have you or I avoid it and it's not that avoidance is always bad you know again in some situations avoidance is is the appropriate response but often what happens is we face challenges now where it's almost like of that avoidance path is like cemented and we just go that way. <laughs> and what happens is the more you go down that avoidance path, the easier it is. So what often happens is in things that challenge us or things that are, um, are difficult and those pain points in our life, we've just ingrained that avoidance path so, so much that it's almost the default path we take. We don't even realize there's another option. And that's what kind of tying to what we talked about earlier, that's what often like creating that distance or space allows you to do is be like, oh, there's other paths here. I don't have to go down this only this avoid path. I have other options. Maybe they would be better in this moment. Yeah, it even makes me think of like that eliminates uh, our ability to see nuance as well, too. Um, yeah, were you, you going to say something? Yeah, exactly. I think you're so, so spot on. And I think if you look at social media has definitely contributed that, right? We don't see nuance. And um, it's fascinating. Actually, I was looking at a research study, a psychology study the other day that had people like took people, stuck them in the room and had them have difficult conversations on all of the like hot button topics that yeah. no one wants to talk about in terms of the other people, like, you know, gun control, like abortion, like anything that's controversial where there's both sides of it. And what they did is they said, you're going to talk to someone who has a different opinion and you can either, they primed, like they told people to either, you know, Hey, you're going to try to learn from them. Or they told them, Hey, this is going to be really uncomfortable. I want you to embrace that discomfort and don't like run away from it. Well, when they told them that versus, hey, just go learn from them. When they told them to embrace the discomfort, they had more productive conversations. Now, they didn't all agree at the end, mm -hmm. but they were able to have that civil discussion where it's like, okay, I still disagree, but like I kind of know where they're coming from. And I didn't get straight into that. What often happens is that that protect or defend mode where it's like, no, no, you're wrong. Like, I'm right. Like, I don't understand you. And there's no productive dialogue. So again, I think it's very fascinating because it's like, okay, how do we set ourselves up? Not only in these physical challenges, but even something simple, like how do we have the nuanced discussions on difficult things that are controversial? And part of it is like, embracing things instead of avoiding them. Yeah. Can you talk about some other ways? And like specifically, like I'm thinking for someone who's in like a leadership role or is leading people and is trying to help develop this sense of toughness or being able to have these hard conversations. What are some things or some other things that you've learned about, hey, try, you know, try this, do this, don't do this, things like that. Yeah. So I think in leadership roles, um, a, a couple things that are really important is that we often have you know, mission statements and core values and all that stuff. And those things are fine and good. But what we know is those things don't work unless the people you are leading actually think they're meaningful and actually think they're important and actually think they're authentic. 
So instead of setting goals or values or mission statements, you know, as a leader and being like, this is what we stand for, make sure it resonates with those you're leading. Make sure they feel like they have a voice to say, like, this is what we stand for. And I get it's hard to do in some companies, but when you do that, you see that authenticity and people resonate with it, you know, <laughs> A, they feel more empowered and A and B, they're more resilient. Another thing that is really important is having people feel like they have some sort of voice and some sort of path forward in whatever organization you're, you're doing. Hmm. And that could be path forward, could be in promotions or what have you, but it could be also in terms of just responsibilities. It's like there is room for growth. Often what happens is we constrict and constrain people instead of saying, hey, like, yes, you work in a company, here's some barriers and some rough, you know, guidelines and maybe some boundaries to pay attention to, but you also have the freedom to explore. You know, uh, I think it was, I forget what the company it was. I think it might've been Google, but they did this fascinating thing where they essentially gave people, you know, company time to say, you know what? Mm -hmm. For this amount of time, go work on a project you want to, you know, go do something you're passionate about that's like really itching that maybe might not be pressing. Well, what does that do? It gives, it sends us a signal that like we value you. We're going to give you this company time and we want you to explore things that yes, are related to our work, but are, you know, are you're interested in and that have meaning and value to you. And that creates that, that kind of cohesion that we often don't you know, don't see in the workplace. What's been the the piece of research or the idea that you've encountered that's been like the biggest life changer for you? The biggest life changer for me. Oh man. <laughs> I know very pressurized quest. Well, also, I'll, I'll take it off. I'll say one of them. What's one of that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the, the one of them, you know, um, I, I, I'm a sports guy. So one of the most fascinating ones to that I saw, but this applies to everything, is a couple of years ago, some researchers in, looked at NBA coaches and athletes, so National Basketball Association, best basketball players in the world, and they looked at the coaches' behavior, and they classified coaches into essentially the worst category was like, I think they called it like abusive coaching, which was essentially like you know, authoritarian, I'm going to yell and scream at you and you're going to perform out of the way of fear. And what was so fascinating is they didn't track all these players for years. And they saw that when you had an abusive coach, your performance dropped and your aggression, your negative aggression in games increased. Mm -hmm. So you started to almost mimic the personality of the coach. But the fascinating part and the impactful part of this research on me was that effect lasted for the rest of their career, even when they were coached by someone else. So even if five years later they had a new coach and they hadn't coached, been coached by the abusive coach for five years, they still were more likely to be aggressive and their performance still had that negative downward spiral. So to me, that's so impactful because it means that like we have a lasting impact on everybody we are, we're involved mm -hmm. with, everybody we lead, everybody we interact with. And we can either, 
you know, set them down, down the right path or hopefully a positive productive path, or, you know, even our interactions can push them in the negative route. And I think that that just reminded me that I have a, I have a big responsibility in my life, no matter if it's in the workplace or leading others or just like friends and family that I, I support and can be there for because it, it impacts us for a long time. Uh, that got me thinking of at some point, if it hasn't happened already, we will have someone who has had that harsh coach. What have you learned about like helping them, helping the people work through that? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of here is it's about processing it. And to here, I'll actually turn to the research on, on grief after a tough loss is <laughs> when you see, when researchers have studied those who have what's called complicated grief, which is that prolonged grief and loss that is just kind of unbearable and puts us in a negative spot versus grief that is processed where yes, it's still very tough and all of that stuff, but they're able to process it and handle it. One of the different key differentiators is emotional flexibility, meaning they are able to turn the dial where they experience the grief, they experience they loss, but they also can see the other emotions and experiences that come out of that, meaning they can feel the love for just having this person in their life. They can feel the thankfulness for that. They can feel the... <laughs> the fortune for it. They can find meaning and purpose and lessons and values that come forward. So I think if we look at, if you had the abusive coach or the abusive, you know, um, leader or boss or whoever have you in your life, it's taking that is it's having that emotional flexibility to understand. Yeah, this was a negative moment. Yes. This might be traumatic, but I need to process that. And at the same time, maybe make sense of it of like, you know what? I went through this, but it taught me, you know, how I don't want to lead. It taught me what really matters to me. It taught me the environment that I want to put myself in. And when you can process and make sense of it, then you're going to be in a better position over the long haul. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is you talk about uh, in the book of re-engaging and persisting. And it's, and again, at some point, we're going to hit something that is, it's a big wall. It's a, it feels like a failure and, or we're going to have to recommit to something. I would just love your thoughts on what do you do whenever you encounter that failure? What help, what have you learned about encountering that failure and like picking yourself back up and going to get a re-engage in your heart? Yeah, that's such a tricky thing to do. The, the way I look at it is it's almost in phases. The first phase is after that failure, it's going to suck you care about it. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel the negative stress, all that good stuff. And that's okay. Like experience those motions, et cetera. And then my mind goes to, okay, how do I shift out of this just in a little, little bit, just enough so I can get on, back on top of it. The best way to do that, again, if you look at research is social interaction, being around others who support you, being able to debrief and just talk to somebody whether therapist, good friend, what have you, so that your brain essentially can process it. And then the other thing that I think is really important is I kind of like set myself some constraints on when I need to get back to doing the thing that I like doing or doing the work. So, you know, in sport, 
it would often be like, well, you got to bounce back for the next game. So maybe you got 24 hours to be kind of upset, but then we got to get back to work. You know, in other things, it might be longer, but some period of time where it's like, okay, I've got to have some signal where it's like, okay, it's time to split back into action mode and, <laughs> and get back where I'm like, okay, I can get going. I can do this stuff. And in that, that place, I think with that re-engaging is it's really important to take small steps. And then what I'd say is also is find ways to give yourself small wins because those small wins and getting back on the horse for like re-engaging in the goal, that will give you that little boost of motivation where it's like, you know what? I don't have to conquer the world, but maybe I wrote 500 words today in my writing. And that was something, or maybe I got out the door for the walk after I haven't, you know, exercised in a, in a long time. And that's a huge deal. So like celebrate those small wins so that they can like keep you motivated over the long haul. Yeah. Well, I know that we've covered a, a ton of stuff in this conversation, which is great. Is there anything else just top of mind that you're thinking about that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we uh, cover? You know, you know, Caleb, I gotta, I gotta give it to you. You asked some of the most interesting and unique oh. questions. So <laughs> I, I, I love this. No, I think we covered a wide array of, uh, of things and I really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know that people are going to, you know, keep up with you, get the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things. Yeah. So you can get it wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, all that stuff on social media. I'm at Steve Magnus. You can also buy the book off my website, stevemagnus.com. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work. Thanks a lot, Caleb. Really enjoyed it. So coming out of that conversation with Steve, there are literally so many things that I could say, so many takeaways from this conversation. I'm going to limit it to three as of this moment that I'm talking. The first one is this, is just what we talked about in having hard conversations or conversations that, uh, you know, as, as we say here, that they might be a little bit difficult. And just the importance of initiating those conversations and giving, giving people permission and realizing that you know, to just what he, he was saying, just what Steve was saying, embrace the discomfort in the conversation that you're going to be uncomfortable. That is okay. You're going to disagree. That is okay. You do not have to agree on this, but we can have productive dialogue. I can learn from you. You can learn from me and so on and so forth. And, and also, and this is something that is just constantly on my mind. Am I the type of person that people feel like they can talk with literally anything about me, about me, with me? Do people feel like they could talk about anything with me? And what work do I have to do in order for that to become a thing that I am comfortable talking about with? So that's the first thing. The second thing is just what we were talking about with inner drive and tapping into that motivation. And to me, one of the strongest examples that I could think of, of what that's happened with me is with this podcast. 
you know, I've talked about uh, several times on here of getting burned out on the podcast. And I think part of that was because of a lot of the external pressures that I was placing or that I, I felt it was external pressures. I was feeling it was external pressure and it was becoming my motivation for it. And I realized that I had to take more control and figure out what is a way that I can continue to do that. Actually, let me, let me back up and say, and then I took a break for a really long time and I had to figure out, okay, why do I really want to do the podcast? And what is success for me? What is going to be the driving force in this podcast? And really, it's two, probably two things. The first thing is this, is that I love learning from people. Love it. I can't, could do this all the time if I, uh, if I was able to. And the second thing is this, is that I really want to create a place to where people can engage in these types of conversations because it's important and they're much needed. And a lot of the, the conversations that we were talking about earlier that are sometimes difficult to engage in, we need a place in order to listen. And even if we're not able to participate, I think sometimes just the listening is enough of knowing that that you're not the only one who thinks that way. And that's what part of the aim here is on the podcast. It is, ne it is no longer about how well the podcast does. My success is much different than that. That is how big the podcast gets, how many downloads the podcast gets is not what success is for me. Success is, am I having fun learning from other people? And am I helping people along the way? And the last thing that I want to talk about is re-engaging because this is something that I've been uh, just in my own life. I've just figured out uh, how can I re-engage because I'm just finding myself in that season to where it's harder to find motivation to, to do what needs to get done. And I just learned a lot and have taken a lot away from that, from even just uh, from going, okay, so after this failure, let's give ourselves some time. And that's, that's what I did recently. I set a date and I went, okay, you have until this time to rest. And at some, and at some times you do realize, okay, I think I need a little bit longer. That happened to me this last time. You know, I, I think I gave myself, you know, one or two days to rest. And I think I was through maybe, I think, I think it might've been one day. Either way, I was, I was in the process and I realized, okay, I need another day in this. And sometimes you realize that and it's okay to readjust, to replan all of that stuff. And, uh, and finding the small wins and defining what success looks like to you, especially if maybe you feel like, uh, that that's just a really difficult thing to find right now. And you're like, okay, I'm not sure I could find purpose in the thing that I'm doing right now. Or maybe you feel like that it's, it's different than what, uh, the purpose that maybe you feel like you have been given by somebody else isn't the purpose that you want to have 
So sometimes I think it's figuring out just that, what we were talking about earlier, the inner drive of what is driving me to do this. And sometimes it's simple as, well, I can help the people around me. Sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated. So those are just a couple of things that I'm thinking about in regards to this. I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you were thinking about, some of the things that you were learning from as well. Please hit me up at Learners Corner Podcast Gmail or Learners Corner Podcast at gmail.com if you have anything or anyone that you would love us to talk with or learn from. Now, I think that's all that I have for today. Uh, please leave a rating, write a review of the podcast, all of those good things. Thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thanks to Steve Magnus for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the show. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.